Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... Today on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Brian Carmody. You may know him as the Sheriff of Sodium. He's the man who knows everything about matching, step one, step two, step three, and everything in between. You won't want to miss this discussion on MDDO and the step exams. You won't want to miss it. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session, joined by Brian Carmody. Dr. Carmody is the Sheriff of Sodium. He's a practicing nephrologist. He's active on Twitter, and he is one of the most astute um, commenters about all things step-related and, and beyond, and beyond the step. Um and and Dr. Carmody is a is a self-professed planner. He actually listens here or there because sometimes he he gives me some tips on the show. Dr. Carmody, it's a pleasure to pleasure to have you join us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Now you were telling me that um, you're born and bred Virginian. Is that right? That's correct. I've 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 lived in Virginia in one place or another my entire life. Where'd you grow up in Virginia? I grew up in southwestern Virginia, um, out where, you know, Virginia and Kentucky and West Virginia and Tennessee meet. Um, and then I went to college in central Virginia and stayed there for medical school and, um, and then ended up out on the coast to, um, to practice and work. Oh, that's wonderful. And you're a practicing nephrologist. Is that right? Pediatric nephrologist, correct. Ah, pediatric nephrologist. And, um, and, and you're also interested in, in, in teaching as well. Is that right? Yeah, I actually, um, you know, at the medical school where I work, I actually get to teach the uh, the kidney module to our um, to our second year medical students. Oh, that's that's the that's that's important thing to do, um, and hopefully they're grateful because that's not an easy thing to teach. Well, I think it's I actually think it's an easy thing to teach. I think that historically we've done a poor job of teaching it, which has unfortunately resulted in turning people off from nephrology, which um, is one one other quest I have in life. Uh, me too. I have the same. Uh, I think we turn people off in my field of oncology, but for different reasons, of course. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, you know, we're going to talk about the step examinations and you know that well, but I want to exactly, I, I guess I don't understand your origin story. What was it? Where was that moment in time where you said, I'm going to immerse myself in this literature and really understand how we accredit physicians, how we do the step exams, how we do postgraduate medical education. When did you decide you were going to master that topic? Yeah, I guess that's sort of a funny story. It's not something that I ever uh, set out with as a goal. It's something that I've sort of gotten pulled more and more into. But, um, you know, honestly, it started, um, I guess, 2017, I think, is when I started to teach our um, our first and second year medical students. And um, over, those t- over those first couple of years, I was really impressed by how different medical school had become than when I did it. And, and man, I didn't feel like I did it that long ago. I mean, I think you and I are, are, are peers and we're medical school at the same time. And I, I really didn't, you know, but, but the, the, um, 
the overwhelming um, importance of the USMLE Step 1 exam looming large over every single thing that we were trying to accomplish, um, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about how, it, to be honest, it was corrupting much of what we were trying to accomplish in the first two years of medical school, I started to, to get a little, I don't know, a little sore spot. And, mm-hmm. and then onto that, um, you may remember there was this sort of, um, you know, Twitter tempest in a teapot that happened um, toward the, the end of 2018, where um, the presidents of the FSMB and NBME, the, the organizations mm-hmm. that sponsor the USMLE exam, mm-hmm. they um, wrote an article in academic medicine that included um, some commentary on the, the, uh, the possibility of a pass-fail step one exam. Uh-huh. And it included some language about how if, if students um, had a pass-fail exam, they might squander that time um, binge-watching the latest series on Netflix uh, and possibly updating their Instagram accounts. And I, yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember. Well, I was. It, it turned out I was. I was the first person to point that out, and uh, you know, people kind of got fired up. But but for the first time, um, you know, it's not that I ever got irritated. Never got irritated about things, but for the first time, people started listening to the things that I got irritated about, and. Um, um, and people began looking to me more, I think, to, um, you know, to know things. And, 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 you know, on that issue in particular, it sort of inspired me that that issue and the NBME's response to it uh, got me kind of fired up to, um, to learn more about them and to learn more about their business operation and to more learn more about the larger system into which, you know, they function. And, um, and one thing's led to another. And, and, and although I didn't set out with this goal, I, I have acquired some content expertise in many of these things. Oh, this is good. Okay. Um, so I'm starting to see. So, uh, you know, you mentioned we're contemporaries. I'm, I'm medical school class of 09. What's your year? 07. 07. Okay. We are contemporaries. We, we, we would have been. We would have been palling around in med school had we gone to the same school. Um, <laughs> but you went, to U, you went to UVA, right? Correct. I did. Oh, yeah. Great place. I love it. I love, I love visiting. Um, okay. Um, so, you know, before I start asking you like a million questions, which is what I'm, which I'm going to do, I want to paint the landscape a little bit and you help me paint it because I'm not as proficient as you are. I mean, I'm interested in this too. Don't get me wrong. I've always been interested. I've been interested since the you know moment I was an intern. Um, I studied the match and the match algorithm and I figured out, you know, uh, how it's suboptimal in a number of ways, which we could have a whole nother conversation on. Um, I got interested in the steps when I took them. And, and, and for me, I guess the source of my motivation is I, I took my first years of medical school. I was a very discontent, um, poor student, very poor student, whatever that pass bar is, I'm like right above the passing bar. Uh, see, I'm a 66% kind of student. And it was unusual for me because I'm not a 66% <laughs> kind of person before. Um, and, and I hopefully haven't been a 66% kind of person since. Um, but it was a 66% kind of person because I was disinterested in the content and I thought it was a lot of rote memorization. And then only when I became a third year of med school was I was like, oh boy, this was the right choice. I literally worried that it wasn't the right choice until that moment. So that was sort of my, that was sort of part of, I think, what drove my interest in, in picking at this. And of course, I'm interested in prediction and all those things. But let me paint the landscape. Here's the landscape. Tell me what I get wrong. The cumulative number of, of spots in the match is something like uh, 20,000, 22,000, something like that. Is that right? Or is it 30,000? I, I'm getting... It's, it's it's north of there. Yeah, I mean, I think last year there were like 34,000 34, okay. positions available to match. Sorry, and, and, but we graduate about 10,000 fewer um, MDs in this country. Fair to say? Correct, correct. So there's a gap. 
there's a gap between um, residency spots and the number of people we graduate with MD degrees. Um, and that gap is largely filled by international medical graduates or IMGs, fair to say. Well, I mean, the, the other group, there's osteopathic medical students now. I mean, there's there's one match now for for all of those. But but you're correct. I mean, there were last year, I want to say there were like 3,000 U.S. citizen IMGs and 4,000 non-citizen IMGs who successfully matched. Um, but that's out of like 40,000 applicants. Okay, good. And I'm, I'm going to come to this. And then, and then how many MDs enter the match and then how many DOs enter the match? Maybe instead of me just speculating bullshit numbers, you know, I'll just ask you. How many MDs enter the match? How many DOs enter the match? Yeah, I think uh, MDs is somewhere north of 20,000 okay. and DOs is like 10,000 or 9,000 thereabouts. Okay. But isn't there another program for DOs to match in outside of this match or are all the matches that DOs get through this match as well? Yeah, nowadays there are. So, uh, you know, historically there was an AOA yes, match that, um, that filled some of those positions. But um, now as of 2020, all graduate medical education positions are accredited by the ACGME. So all of those have uh, old DO positions have now gone into ACGME um, domain. And, and I, I think they're almost all are offered on the match. I see. So then, okay, so to paint the picture, we're talking about um, about 35,000 cumulative spots in the match. About forty thousand cumulative applicants, correct? Um, of the thirty right. of the thirty five thousand spots that get matched, um, probably everybody who does the MD twenty thousand, they're all going to get some match. There are a few people who fall through the cracks. Of the of the nine thousand, go ahead. Yeah, you're correct. So, I mean, the the historic match rate for U.S. MD seniors is in the neighborhood of 94 percent, and of those seven percent who fail to match, um, typically those are. Most of those are people who are applying in a highly competitive specialty, yeah. and in a way, they sort of voluntarily choose to go yeah. and match. They could have probably acquired a position in a less desirable field or location, but they choose to to do something else. Now, some that doesn't apply to, but the bulk of that group, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, they they uh, they want to do plastics, and if they don't match, they're gonna take a year off, do lab work, and then come back and apply right. plastics. Right. Right. Okay. okay. So the MDs, the twenty grand, most of them matching. The DOs, the nine thousand DOs that enter the match. What percent of them are matching? Most of them are matching. Last yeah, last year, yeah, I think it was ninety-one percent. Okay. So almost as good as the USMDs. And um and the ultimate fill rate for um US osteopathic positions is, you know, ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent of them ultimately find a position, you know, through the soap or um, you know, in the in the initial match. I see. And now let's talk about the the um foreign medical graduates or the international medical graduates, of which there's two cohorts. There's the U.S. born um students who happen to choose or um perhaps were pushed towards doing medical school abroad or in the Caribbean. Um, and and then there are people who were born in other countries who did their med school there and they come in. How many of them apply in the match and what percent of them match? Yeah, the, the, the match rate has lately been, um, oh gosh, I want to say like 60% yeah, for those groups okay. overall, um, which is higher than it has been, you know, um, but, but it's correct. There's a significant um, surplus of applicants from those categories to, to positions available. And, and I would argue, I mean, one thing that, I mean, we're going to talk about this. This is one of the things I'm going to push you on. But first, I want to paint the landscape so that everyone sees clearly what we're talking about. 35,000 spots, you said 20,000 MD applicants, 9,000 DO applicants, and, um, and 6,000, you said, uh, uh, IMGs. Um, and, that and successfully match. That yeah. Successfully so, match. so like 40-some thousand applicants overall, overall. for 35,000 positions. 
And and I think what I want to paint the picture is, and and perhaps, and I don't, and and see if you find this characterization fair. But I mean, really, what we're doing is almost all of the people who get an MD are going to have some spot, and if they don't get a spot, it's mostly because they don't want to take a spot. Almost all the people who have a DO are going to get a spot, and if they don't want a spot, it's might maybe because they don't want a spot and they want to try their hand again the next match. And then whatever spots are left over, we're going to allow people with international training, including some people who are born and raised in the U.S. and of course just went there for their medical degree. We're going to allow those people to jump into the match, um, even though this isn't what anyone explicitly thinks. This is the net result of the system, right? That it it it's a system that favors MDs, favors DOs, and whatever's left over. Um, will let people have a crack at it. Yeah, I would say that's true. I would say that, um, I mean, there is some explicit messaging on this topic. I mean, um, so the the Council on Graduate Medical Education, which is the, um, you know, it's, it's a very powerful body that many people are not intimately familiar with, but they're appointed by the um, Department of Health and Human Services to formulate and advise Congress on um, uh, you know, legislative matters um, relating to graduate medical education and physician practice. Um, they've had several reports where they've articulated a, a goal of having the number of residency positions um, be like 110% of the number of US MD and DO graduates. Why? Um, now, I mean, yeah. the thing is that in our graduate, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think um, in general, there has been a, well, yeah, actually, uh, that's sort of an interesting history all to itself because. Um, when you look at the history of this, there's often been this pendulum swinging about, oh, 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 we don't have enough physicians. We're headed toward a crisis. Oh, 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 we have way too many physicians. We're headed toward a crisis. And so we do things to um, to tinker based upon that perception. And ultimately, I think history has shown it's very difficult to predict what the market space for for physicians is is going to look like. I see. So lately, what you have seen is, um, you know, because of the um, because of some legislative constraints on federal funding for GME, um, you know, there's been growth in GME positions. But there's actually been a more rapid growth in the number of um, U.S. medical MD and DO positions, such that um, there's been a, a, a particularly rapid expansion of DO schools over the past, you know, 15 years or so. Um, so I think we've gotten closer toward that goal. I mean, especially if you look back to um, Oh, I don't know. I think the heyday for international medical graduates was like around maybe 1990 before right. the managed care era right, when right. 40% of, of GME positions were, were um, you know, filled by um, international medical graduates. Yeah. And it so, reflects necessity because, um, you know, their hospitals don't want to have unfilled positions. Of course. Yes. So, I mean, okay, now, now let's add the next level of complexity. Let's talk about the, the ecosystem. I mean, one of the checks and balances in this system is the medical profession wants to keep a cap on the number of postgraduate residents we train. And why do we want to keep some limit on that? Because if we let that go to infinity, um, our salaries are going to take a hit. And so we want to make ourselves um, uh, uh, scarce to some degree. Um, somebody told me... Um, uh, the the go the sweet spot of being a doctor is when you're so busy you don't have time to do um, low value medical practices and I thought it's kind of meant to be a joke but I thought there's some truth to that you know that, right right that there is something about like if you just had a if you if we just snapped our fingers and had ten thousand more neurosurgeons you know what they'd be doing they'd be removing little discs and little 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 nothings and and everyone's back I mean they'll just MRI everyone until they found something to do they're not going to stay idle is my point they're going to find something to do okay so anyway so the, one of the things of the profession is we want to keep the supply physicians low enough so that the salaries are high. Another goal is, I think, um, 
We want to be able to meet the needs of the population, and that changes. Population is older, frailer, more cancer, or at least cancer goes with age, and so ergo there'll be more um, absolute number of cancer cases. And so, you know, we have to balance all these things. Um, one of the other checks in the system is that there has to be more residency spots than medical schools. Otherwise, it will be total chaos. It will be anarchy because if somebody just dropped two hundred grand, two fifty grand, three hundred grand for an education, and you're telling them they don't have a residency spot, they're going to rip your head off. So there has to be more spots. Um, so there has to be that buffer, I think. Otherwise, the system would would implode. Um, then the question comes in, how do you manage that buffer? And one way to manage that buffer is international medical graduates because they can, in years of, of decline, take these spots. And then in years of, of surfeit, they'll get fewer spots. So, I mean, and I think that's a system we've come to. Um, I think the U.S. is unusual in the sense that among postgraduate medical spots, uh, my understanding is that we have the highest percent of uh, international medical graduates. I mean, if you go to Sweden, if you go to Denmark, if you go to Spain, um, you don't often find international medical graduates. You mostly find people who did all their training in Sweden, Denmark, and Spain. Um, this is just a this is just a choice that people that that is made by society. Um, uh, no one in particular, but just the way the system works. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is the hospitals' incentive is different here too. The hospitals' incentive is to maximize this labor force because it's the cheap, it's the greatest labor force on earth. Um, they they don't complain. They have very little vacation. They can't do much, and they work like dogs. I mean, they work really hard. Um, so hospitals' incentive is to grow this, but of course, you know, they have all these other stakeholders that are putting pressure on it. Would you say that that's sort of a fair summary of some of the the politicking of this of this this transaction? Yeah, I think so. I think that there's uh, you know the the trouble is that even as powerful as an org, you know an entity like you know Cogme C O G of me is. It, it, you know, it, when we talk about our system of graduate medical education, it's a system sort of like, um, I don't know, it's a system like the political system in the United States where everyone is uh, out for their own incentives and, and the system that emerges is sort of a function of all those individual behaviors yes. versus a system like your immune system where there's some sort of coordinated response. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's the, the system that we have is the sum total of all these individual incentives. And not coordinated at all. In other words, it's just like the SARS-CoV-2 response. It's the COVID-19 response. <laughs> no coordination. Right. So, everything. To, yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So there's some, you know, there's some powerful levers, but, yes. um, I mean, you know, like the, um, the federal funding for, for GME, which, uh, you know, of course, as, as most of your listeners know, will ha has been capped since 1997, um, which hasn't kept hospitals from creating new residency positions. It just means they have to fund them through some other mechanism. And so that leaves it to hospitals and sort of local market forces as to whether it's financially a good decision to expand your residency program or not. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea with actually, this is explicitly in the, in the Cogni reports, the idea of uh, using that federal cap on, um, uh, you know, Medicare funding for GME was to prevent having an incentive for hospitals to, uh, you know, be able to train an, a limitless number of graduates from, you know, likely from overseas, you know, um, in a way that, you know, would be funded by the government. Right. I see. Okay. This is good. Now I want to unpack the next bit of background, which is the steps. Um, there, there's some changes recently. So when I, when you and I did it, there were, um, three steps, but one step has two parts, of course, and let's make it complicated. Right. Step one, step one, you take after your first years of medical school, and it is a test of rote memorization. It's a test of Minutia, mostly basic science minutia. And I always joke that it's a test of um, the Krebs cycle. And there's some Krebs cycle on there. But there's also 
I mean, if people actually took this test, if a practicing doctor took this test, it'll kick your ass. I mean, you don't know any of this stuff on this test. Um, which uh, isoform of RNA polymerase um, uh, works on a um, uh, certain type of virus? And you're like, what the hell? Um, which subunit of the ribosome is inhibited by erythromycin? Like, I know when to give it, but I don't know which subunit. Did the, I didn't even know the ribosome has subunits. And to be honest with you, I forgot what a ribosome is. What is a ribosome? What are they even doing? The only time I know what a ribosome is is when somebody tries to explain to me how this mRNA vaccine works. Um, but I, I, right. I tease, I tease a little bit. But it, it, it really is a um, rote memorization test of molecular biology, biochemical. Very rare pediatric disease, Hunter Hurler. I know Hunter aims for the X, it's X link, you know, you know, you have to remember all these mnemonics. Um, uh, and then I practiced for many years. I, I don't think I've ever actually, actually, no, I worked at NIH, so I have come across some Hunter and Hurler syndrome. But outside of the NIH, where there's a, a, a referral bias for such things, uh, I have not come across it. Um, nonetheless, you have to memorize these things. What you're not learning in, in that time is you're not learning the skills of being a good clinician, really listening to people meeting them where they come, thinking through their problems, thinking if the juice is worth the squeeze on a workup, thinking if a diagnostic test is the right test, test characteristics, how well does it move you to post-test probability, thinking about what you should do. I mean, you're not learning that. I mean, that's just on the back burner for those first few years. Um, this test was um, scored on a, I don't even know the max score, but I think it was like a theoretical 300-point score. I knew some people who scored in the high 280s, 289. Um, they were like uh, savants. Um, and, but you know, they weren't always the best. I mean, obviously we'll talk about the correlation between this test score and being a good doctor. Of course, they were not always the best doctors. In fact, that was often the case. Um, but, um, you know, it was the score and the score really had like tremendous, uh, it was like your worth as a human being, you know, you, you wake up every morning and you think about your test score and it would determine like if you're a good person or not. I mean, it really, it really felt that way because people told you flat out, like you got, you got 220 reasons why you can't consider ENT. Um, you got 260 reasons why radonc is a choice that you might like. Um, but it literally, these competitive specialties, yeah. And, and I should just say as a little bit of background, the reason why competitive specialties are competitive is, in my opinion, explicated by the average um, income that that specialty can earn over the course of a year. The specialties that are sought after earn generally higher income, and also the ratio of controllable to uncontrollable hours or controllable to uncontrollable work. So for instance, specialties where you can leave the office and punch out the clock and no one is going to bother you and you make 400 grand are preferentially considered over specialties where you make 400 grand, but when you punch out, you're going to get called all night or potentially. Um, so, so that's what led to some unusual specialties rising to the top. I mean, urology, you wouldn't guess, but probably urology may be more competitive than transplant surgery. I mean, I don't know. I mean, but that's very likely to be the case. Or or maybe uh, cardiothoracic or thoracic surgery. I mean, urology is maybe more competitive. You know, urology more than thoracic. I think that's that's quite plausible. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I think that might be true. Um, um, radonc, um, plastic surgery, um, you know, things that jump to the top. Dermatology, opto. Oh, the, they call it the road to a good life. Radiology, opto, anesthesia, and derm. They're like, boom, that's the road right, to a good right. life. Right. Um, okay. Um, anyway, so this was part of the step one thing. Um, uh, so the step one was the score you finished, the test after you finished the first two years. Um, recently, they have made that pass fail, which was something that I like. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I always felt like it wasn't the definitive solution because the definitive solution would be to have the 
have the test content reflect what we actually want doctors to know. Um, and that to me is still the gap. And so it's nice when you make a test pass fail, you do allow medical schools to say, Hey, we're only going to teach this like 50% of the time. The other 50% we're going to teach a real shit, um, how to be a doctor. Um, so you, because all you need to do is pass this. So you do change that kind of equation and you change in the psychology of the student's mind, which is like, I'm all, you know, step one, step one, step one, step one to now like, Oh, it's pass fail. I can focus on that, but I can also, you know, do uh, probably in their mind actually now do research with an ENT or research with an orthopod because I want to get competitive for those specialties. Okay. So thoughts on step one, did I summarize it fairly? What did I get wrong? And, and thoughts on like good move, bad move, pass, fail. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely, I mean, I, I tried, um, for a long time to keep my finger in the NBME's eye about, um, discussing a pass, fail step one. And, um, um, and I feel like it's a move that is unquestionably on the right side of history. I mean, when I think back to my own experience taking yeah. step one, man, it just wasn't a big deal. I mean, like it was something we thought about, but I, I, I mean, I studied for it for a couple of weeks. I focused on my classes. I really didn't, it just wasn't this, uh, you know, this big of a deal as when I came back to teach, you know, a little over a decade later. Um, I mean, I saw people carrying first aid for the, you know, step one from the first day of class in August. You know, I mean, you try to teach someone or, or talk about some clinical correlate and, and the students will frankly tell you, like, I don't want to know something that I don't have to know right now. You know, it's, it's very difficult to get engagement with things right. that students in a different circumstance, if they weren't squeezed so hard, um, you know, might engage with. And so I think that, um, that, you know, when we look back on this, we will say it is a move that, I mean, we, we should have done probably a long time ago. Right. I mean, it. The, the, the premise that there's a certain amount of basic science understanding that you need to progress in training, I think that's a, a defensible argument. And I think that it's adequately assessed by a, a pass-fail step one without pushing people to achieve higher and higher scores that, as you suggested, result in focusing on less and less informa information that could help a, a human being in any circumstance. <laughs> right. I, so, um, yeah, I yeah. think it's the right move. Well, I, I, uh, I, I, I always like a little anecdote to, to show you. Um, I once, you know, I used to teach a class for every January for many years when I worked in Oregon and it was on, um, clinical trials and how to think about them. And I walked into the class one day and had just, everything was erased, but just an ash off body in the middle. And it felt like, you know, a twinge in my spine, it's ash off body. The, what the hell is an ash off body? I was thinking to myself, what is an ash off body? I was like, and then I was thinking I'm an old man. My brain don't work no more, Brian. Brain don't work no more because I don't know what an ash off body is. Um, Students right. walk in. You know what it is? Uh, vaguely. <laughs> vaguely. That's all I knew. <laughs> but, yeah. But but yet here I am, you know, as a um, as a practicing physician, seemingly, um, you know, gainfully engaged in the practice of medicine and, uh, you know, helping patients, you know, without immediate factual recall of that um, knowledge. Yes, exactly. You're proving that one does not need it to be a good pediatric nephrologist. Well, you know what it is? It is the um, histopathologic finding in rheumatic heart disease. That's what it is. Now, I, I don't know if you know this, but no, you know, I was just on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. But you know, rheumatic heart disease is not quite as common these days as it once was. I don't know if you know that. There's some <laughs> antibiotics that were made that actually have dispelled it. But um, anyway, th that was on the board. And, and then um, the kids walk in and I said, what, what is this? What is this? And then, of course, you know, they all know it, right? They're all closer to it than we are. And they know it off the tip of their tongue. Then in the middle of the lecture, we're talking about a trial, and the p-value is 0.04. And I said, can anyone explain to me what does that p-value mean? And they say, well, they say, there's a 4% chance the drug doesn't work. I'm like, oh, no, my friend. Yeah, yeah. No, my friend. That's not what it means at all. And actually, nobody knew the answer in the class. And 
and I, I don't want to pick on the students. If I did that in a room of faculty, no, I, I doubt one, right. one out of a, one out of a hundred people will know the answer to actually tell me what a P value is. Um, that's telling. I mean, that's really telling to me that we're prioritizing the histopathologic right. finding in a condition that's on the decline, that's at record low levels that, that you'll never need to know, honestly, versus something that you will need to know every single week for the rest of your life because they're trying to get you to do something new. It blows me away. Right, right. And, and my hope had always been that, um, and, and this is still my hope, it's just sort of gotten a little delayed, but you know, my hope was that um, you know, uh, the move to pass-fail would inspire a, a more thoughtful discussion and implementation of what we're trying to accomplish in medical school. Right. And you, know, for, you, remember, you may remember, it was, um, you know, it was February of last year that the um, USMLE made the announcement that right. the test would be moving to pass-fail. And I'll tell you, for a couple of weeks there, my life was really, really nice. I mean, I got to meet with People, I had a, people emailing me saying, "Hey, how do we how do we make the most of this? What do we need to do?" But of course, across the world, you know, COVID nineteen was already tearing apart Italy, and you know, within a couple of weeks of the decision, it had arrived in full force in right. New York, and and then every person who had had any interest in it um, was purely focused on putting out fires at their own institution, you know, and how do we get people through clerkships and how yes. do we do this and how do we do that? And, um, and we've stayed in that mode, you know, ever, ever since. And, and actually in, instead we've had this sort of, um, at least in, in the sphere in which I operate, we've had this sphere, this, this surge of uh, step one nostalgia yes. of people surveying program directors and talking about how, you know, now we've got the, uh, you know, more bias and not a level playing field and, you know, what, what horrible things. And I just, you know, I, I have much I could say about that, but your, your listeners, if they've followed me at all, they've probably heard me say it before. Oh yeah. And, um, we'll come back to that. I mean, it, it's, I mean, I don't know. Doctors are not good at change. We're not good at change. We're old fashioned animals. We are really old fashioned and, and, uh, we're not, we're not good at this, but let me come back to that. Now let's talk about step two. So, and step three. So step three is the exam you take usually, I think, sometime during your intern year. Some people who are wise take it before their intern year. That's actually smart. Um, step three, I got no pr major problems with. It's a standardized test, roughly asking you questions that are roughly pertinent to being a doctor. So I never had a real beef with it. Step two, there are two parts to it. There's the CK and the CS. Step two, CK, is roughly sort of a middle examination that asks you a number of clinical correlate kind of questions. Um, I never had too much of a beef with it either. Some people who don't do well on step one would try to take step two CK a little earlier, try to get a good score and show that they're good at the standardized testing. You know, um, I never thought about that too much because I thought, I, I mean, we can talk about whether or not these standardized tests are how we should pick people, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, then there's step two CS, which was a very costly exam. They only had it a few centers. Um, it was where you literally had to take care of a standardized patient. Um, and, um, you know, people, when I was a trainee, when I was a student, people would say that the step two CS is, is just a test to see if you speak English. And I thought that was really sort of a derogatory thing. You know, is, is that insulting? Um, over time, I came to worry that, that there might be some truth to that, that that was a way, um, an in-person examination, a hoop that the IMGs had to jump through, very costly hoop. And you weren't really being graded on medical acumen, but rather um, simple social niceties, putting the, the drape over the patient's legs, um, um, which are important, of course, but I think the way you're graded on is very capricious and random way. And you're also kind of graded on your, your um, ability to communicate in English. Um, 
Do you feel like that is an apt or is that a disparaging characterization? And then the new recent thing is, of course, they just announced they're doing away with Step 2 CS. Um, so what do you think of my description of it? This is, I mean, this is just what people told me when I was a student. Um, fair, not fair? I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's supported by the the historical records. I mean, the, the exam that we know as, as USMLE Step 2 CS um, was something that the NBME sort of um, jumped into that, that was initially developed by the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates, or ECFMG, as, as the group that certifies IMGs as being ready. And, and they had been um, involved in that area dating back to, um, you know, when I researched this, I want to say it was 1979 or 1980, but somewhere around in that time frame, there was some meeting where I guess there was some um, shouting and colorful language thrown about where an ECFMG representative was giving a presentation and program directors were shouting him down and saying, you know, your exams are, are pointless. We have people who do quite well on these written exams mm -hmm. and they show up and they don't have a clue how to, you know, it's like a bull in a China shop. They don't know how to act and, you know, with a patient yeah. and, you know, they don't know how to do even a cursory physical exam. And so they put pressure on the ECFMG to do more of a practical evaluation of their um, of their applicants for certification. And the ECFMG, honestly, they set about it um, in a thoughtful way where they they um, they first studied the issue and they sought to develop this exam. And they found that indeed IMGs as a group did show deficiencies in what they considered clinical skills compared I to see. U.S. graduates at the time. And they um, and they built up this exam and. Um, uh, they provided guidance to IMG saying, if you can't score above this threshold on such and such English test, you're likely to fail. And even just that decreased the number of um, uh, international medical applicants, uh, you know, who, who even wanted to take on that exam. So if you look at the number of test takers, um, you know, just the implementation of the ECFMG's clinical skills exam reduced the number probably through self-selection you know, of people who felt that they could overcome that, I that hurdle. See, and, see. um, mm. but then, so, so ultimately it was sort of, I mean, a, it was a successful exam from the standpoint of accomplishing what, um, what it was intended to do. Um, but it led to a lot of complaints from international medical graduates that it was unfair, especially for us citizen international medical graduates to say that, you know, they would say, you know, I, you know, I, I grew up in, in Georgia. Why should I have to take this exam? just because I chose to go to school, you know, someplace other than the United States. I see. And, um, you know, the NBME was, had long been interested in having a clinical skills exam. And I think saw the opportunity to, um, uh, partner with ECFMG and turn it into the step two CS exam that, uh, we knew and didn't love for 16 years till it went away. I see. I see. I see. So it is rooted in, in fact, exactly that kind of malicious thing that um, my my classmates used to tell me about it. Okay. Um, now here are my questions for you. Question one. You know, there there uh, it's a very sensitive subject. I can tell because that Scrubs um, said something about it that I don't know that that Figs brand of Scrubs and they got obliterated. Um, but you know, my core question is. Why is there even an MD and a DO? Just have one thing, whatever you want to call it, MD, call it DO, whatever. But it, why are we even have these two schools, two schools of thought? I mean, does it even make sense in the modern world? Why not just make every program an MD program and we can end ourselves of this debate of is a DO the same as an MD is the same as this? I mean, right? I, I guess that's my question to you. What, why even preserve two separate programs? We're already merging all the other stuff at the back end. Yeah, like a lot of things in in medicine, it's uh, it's sort of historical path dependence. I mean, um, 
you know, the, the school of osteopathic medicine, uh, you know, arose in the, in the late 1800s um, as sort of one of many alternative philosophies of medicine. I mean, at that time, there were, uh, you know, I mean, there were magnet healers and water healers and, um, you know, chiropractic medicine sort of <laughs> spawned off as an offshoot of osteopathic uh-huh. medicine. And, and only, I mean, it's interesting to look, I mean, the homeopaths, the, the eclectic schools of medicine. And interestingly, you know, the only one of those that has survived to this day in a form that, that, you know, has the prestige in society of being a physician is osteopathic medicine. And if you look at the history of osteopathic medicine, um, there's actually a fascinating book about it called the DOs by uh, Norman Gevitz, who's okay. one of the deans at AT Still University. Um, you can see how, as he traces the history, I mean, there were multiple times when osteopathic medicine could have kind of fallen off the wagon altogether and become a fringe movement. And, um, you know, and, and, and every time that that happened, uh, the schools of osteopathic medicine sort of elevated their standards, um, incorporated more of the scientific practice of medicine and became more like MDs. To the point where, you know, now, as, as we've discussed previously, um, as of 2020, all residency, there's a single, you know, residency, uh, you know, sele- uh, accreditation system such that MDs and DOs receive exactly the same training at exactly the same programs. And, um, and so I think at this point, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of agnostic about whether there should or shouldn't be a DO. I mean, I think if schools want to keep the DO degree, I think that's, um, I think, you know, because it reflects a certain philosophy or value set, I think, I think that's fine. I think it'd be fine if they want to go MDs. There have been a couple of times throughout osteopathic medicine's history where they've explicitly rejected um, the possibility of receiving, you know, an MD degree. I see. Um I guess they, my understanding is that at least when I trained, I, I did my undergrad at Michigan State and I had some friends stay on for Michigan State DO school. And one of the things that they learned in the DO school that we didn't learn at all is this quote unquote manipulative medicine. Um, is, do they still teach this manipulative medicine? Yeah, they do. Um, I think, um, you know, I think that much of it has a poor evidence base. That's what I was about and to I ask think that you. one okay. thing that, I mean, if, <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, it, no, I think it's, uh, yeah. I see. So poor evidence, but that's what, that's what I was getting at. So I guess, I mean, from my standpoint, I see, um, there is, um, there's a perpetual, um, you know, whether people talk about it or not, there is some soreness between these two camps, people with MDs and DOs. And even, I remember that I didn't Trump had a doctor who had a DO and everyone on Twitter was like, all up, you know, they're all critical of him because he was a DO. Yeah, I was like, right. yeah, but the problem with him wasn't that he had a DO. The problem with him was the, the stuff he was saying didn't make a lick of sense. That was the problem, right? right? It wasn't, it wasn't right. great. Right. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I feel like the simplest way to harmonize this whole thing. Well, and then the other thing is, I mean, I, I, I don't know where this DO bias comes from, but is it, is it the case that, um, like on average, the average DO program, and the average MD program that there is, is there a difference in the average, like MCAT, GPA, those kinds of things? Are they, um, you know, they're, they're getting slightly lower on average. I mean, that's not to say, you know, obviously like all distributions, there's a huge overlap. There's more overlap than there is disparates. But on average, is there a slight difference between these two programs? There is. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a slight difference in, um, uh, 
you know, the MCAT scores, the, the undergraduate GPA, the, um, you know, the parental affluence. I mean, all those things, I see. things sort of favor MD schools. I see. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know. My, my point of view is, I, I'll say it right now. I'll just put it out there. Just, just get rid of it. Just call them both MDs. It'll do a few things. One, um, I bet there's some stigma among applicants that they don't want to go to the DO school if they can go to an MD school. But when you call them all the same thing, that stigma will go away. So then the average applicant might even, you know, go up. Who knows? Whatever. Uh, by those metrics, if those metrics are even right or wrong. But at least there'll be more mixing. The second thing is, then people who finish the degree, they won't have to feel any chip on their shoulder or, um, or, or vice versa, um, you know, uh, uh, forever. And then we can all be the same doctors. Um, anyway, that's just my two cents. Okay, next question for you. Um, you know, one of the things I hear a lot on Twitter, <laughs> and I guess occasionally in real world, is that some of these um, changes people talk about, quote, is it fair to IMGs? Make pass one, step step one, pass fail. Some people have argued that it's not fair because they need a very high step one score so that IMG can distinguish itself, distinguish him or herself um, him, from, from the many, many IMGs. And I guess I want to say, I guess I'm curious what you think about that argument. And then I guess I want to ask a, a really philosophical question, um, which is, I hate to say this, but I don't, the US system is not fair to IMGs in the sense that if one were to go around the globe and ask every single 18-year-old who's training to be a doctor globally, would you want to come and live and work and practice in the U.S.? The answer might be 50,000 people per year say yes. 50,000 people globally may say, of course I want to go to the U.S. and practice medicine. Why? Because your salaries are so fucking high. And, you know, of course I want to go there. Um, which is true. Um, but the U.S. can't take 50,000 people. And, you know, of those 50,000, maybe 47,900, 49,000 are really good people, you know, like really good. Like they could do a good job if we trained them um, to be a doctor, but we can't take them all um, because it would, I mean, I, I, I mean, unless we're thinking of a whole new geopolitical world where there are no borders and it's all one nation, then maybe we could take it all. But I mean, we can't take them all because it would, it would rock bottom the prices and the labor force it would change what it means to be a physician. And there will be perpetual discontent among people um, who grew up in this country about what are the opportunities they're competing in a global workforce. I mean, this is the same kind of discussion that people who are engineers deal with and who, who people who work in factories with, you know, robotic labor. I mean, it's just a fundamentally a labor discussion. Um, so anyway, so I want to say that the current system is not fair to IMGs globally because it doesn't give every IMG globally an equal shot. It gives some IMGs some shot to fill this labor gap. Um, those IMGs may actually not be the most, um, um, uh, um, people who've overcome the most in their life. They might be people in other countries who have a fair bit of resources because to some degree you got to, to be able to move to the U S and take all these tests and jump through all these hoops. Um, so it might not be the most just or egalitarian kind of system. It's just the system we have. Um, so, so I guess I want to say, um, to that argument that like if the argument is we ought to keep step one fast fail because some people globally need it to get some of these spots, I guess I would I would I would maybe humbly argue. And I guess I, the other thing I want to say, full disclosure, you know, my parents are immigrants. Many of their they weren't doctors, but many of their friends are doctors. I love all these people. I mean, they're like my aunts and uncles. I believe that immigration is the greatest, you know, one of the greatest things in America. Um, and I and. A lot of the people I work with are IMGs who are like some of the best doctors I know. And so I guess the U.S. and all nations are forever in a, in a, in a balancing act. We want the best and brightest globally to come here. 
Here we budgeted, I think, many more seats than any other country, 6,000 seats that are, that are open and available for the best and brightest. But we can't take everyone. We can't even take everyone who's good. Um, and using the step one score, my argument back was using the step one score to decide which global person should jump in, that's just imposing a capricious metric. It's not picking the best doctor globally. Um, okay, so your thoughts on this relationship, like, um, I don't know. I mean, I've just been rambling. But, I mean, how do you think about this issue of fairness, global justice, what's right, um, and step one scores? How, how do you make sense of this? Yeah, that's a, you, you raise a lot of good points. I mean, um, <clears throat> I think the first thing that, that, you know, sort of has to be acknowledged at the outset, which is, is you know, uncomfortable to talk about, but I mean, reflects the, the political reality is that, um, I mean, we simply will never have a system politically speaking where um, a whole lot of USMDs and DOs go unmatched. I mean, presuming that there's extra spaces. They can't, I mean, the, it, it the, just cannot that happen. That as a it political happen. reality, yeah. right. It's right. game and over. I, and yeah. I think at the outset, we have to sort of, right, that will not happen. And so um, um, now, as far as this level playing field argument, I've always been a little bit critical of that because the reason that you mentioned, it allows some people to win. But if you came from another planet and I showed you the system that we had, and I led you through it, and I said, and here's how we select people for these positions. And I showed you that the average MD student has a step score that's fairly high, and the average DO student has a step score that's somewhat lower, and the average IMG has a, a USMLE score that's lower still. You would not perceive the step one score as being this level playing field metric. You would perceive it as a tool that's used to enforce a certain hierarchy. And indeed, I mean, if you look, what school, what school do you reckon has the highest step one scores as a school? Harvard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you like to gander who has the, the second highest? Uh, mm, Stanford or Hopkins? Good. Yes, Washington. Hopkins. I mean, Hopkins, okay. Yeah. Hop, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, yeah, you could, and, and, and honestly, I mean, we could continue this exercise and I could walk you down through the list. And, and you would, with great accuracy, predict. So, I mean, it's not, there's this myth that there's like some, uh, you know, big population of dunces at these, you know, prestigious schools that are, that are getting beaten out for positions because of a low step one score. That really, that, that, it sounds nice, but that's not real. I mean, the reality is that the step one system creates a system of winners and losers. I mean, it does allow among the groups of IMGs who, to be frank, for the most part, they're competing for residency positions that um, are not desirable for U.S. medical graduates. I think that's a, a, a fact-based fact assertion. Um, it allows certain members of that group to shine. Um, but the idea that, um, that it makes it more fair, as you said, I mean, that to, to make that argument, you would have to believe that the step one score was a credible measure of um, you know, of your value relative to your peers and, and that that was the, the tool that we should be using rather than just a convenience metric that allows us to sift through a giant pile of applications. Yeah, I think that's well put. That's well put. That, I mean, that's the way I come at it. And I think, I think, you know, it's easy to go on Twitter and to say you're championing the IMG, you're championing, um, somebody who life hasn't given a lot of opportunity to whether in this country or in a, a globally i think it's easy to say that the challenge is i think these systems are way more complex and and there is there is some you know i grew up in laporte indiana which is rust belt tough place i mean not tough place but i mean like a place that was not in its its heyday um 
and you know Pete, Pete Buttigieg was um, high school one county over, um, and and um, there there were definitely some smart kids I went to, to um, high school with, who some of them may have aspired to be a doctor, but they didn't become a doctor because they didn't get it. They didn't get any MD spots or DO spots, and they didn't want to take that the the financial burden of going to the Caribbean or abroad, um, which is something that some people do, but not everybody. Um, there's also somebody I know, you know, my cousins are, you know, many of my cousins are still in India, um, super smart docs, um, many whom would have wanted to, I think, come to this country and, and do residency. And I guess I'd say that, like, I, I don't have the answer, but I think that it's, 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 it's a very complex political question of should we open more medical schools in the United States to give this person I went to high school with who probably would be a great doctor, actually. You know, if we gave him the shot, we actually, like, said, you know, you're just a little bit low on the test scores, but we can help you. You know, we can get you through. Become a good doctor. They're going to be a great doctor. They might go back to LaPorte, Indiana, live the rest of the life, you know, and, and take good care of people and give good primary care or, you know, good specialty care, whatever they want. Versus my cousin, you know, you're a super smart person globally. You, you know, you deserve some opportunity. Come over here. Um, we'd love to have you. You can go work in one of these communities, um, be a part of the community, be part of the American dream. Um, but the truth is that you can't do it for everybody in both groups. I mean, there's some limits to how many people, doctors we can have. Unless, of course, you have so many more doctors that you will bottom out the, the doctor labor market. And the answer is, I, I think it's, it's a tricky political question. I don't have the answers. Um, I think some of the principles you've outlined are the right ones, which is that um, people who uh, are, are, grow up in this country who shell out that kind of outlay to get the MDDO – um, if they were to go unmatched, it would be politically unthinkable. And so that's one of the starting points. Um, and then from there, we can talk about sort of the balances. Okay, my next question for you, unless you want to comment on this. Oh, yeah, I'm ready for another question. I, mean, okay, I can okay. talk about whatever you, <laughs> whatever you want to. No, let's it's your show. <laughs> one of the things people say about this step one is um, – there's some truth to it. I mean, I, I've been talking recently to a couple of people. They're dermatologists. Um, and one of them, the people I've been talking with, uh, I'll disguise it a little bit. They know about how the program directors have to choose people in dermatology. My friend, it is not easy. Derm is hot, 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 hot. Everyone wants to be a dermatologist. I sometimes see the dermatologist and I say, why wasn't I that dermatologist? No, I, I actually don't have, I don't have derm envy. Um, but... But many people do want to be dermatologists. And then th these people were telling me that they, they really, like first year medical school, first week, they're getting emails like, can I meet, talk about research, talk about this, talk about that. Right. Yeah. Um, and then they say something like, dude, you know, if it weren't for step one, how the hell are we going to go through 10,000 applications for two spots, you know, or whatever, four spots? I don't know how many. Right. Um, right. And I guess I want to say like, I don't know, my, my point of view is always um, – the, the core failure here is not that you don't have a good ruler to decide who could be a dermatologist. And the truth is, these kids are all so good, if you took the top 80% and randomly picked any of them, they're all going to blow you. They're all going to be good. They're all hungry. They're all good. Right. You, you can't tell them apart. The failure, I think, is that the, the, that too many people want it. The incentive, they, they want to be dermatologists too bad, and, the, and there's not enough spots. And that's because there's some perversity in how they're getting paid. They're getting paid too much. I mean, I hate to tell you, that's just getting paid too much compared to other specialties per volume of work. And that's why it's so competitive. Look at your field. It's a noble field, actually. Beautiful, very fascinating, a lot of good physiology, biology. But I think pediatric subspecialties, 
you're not getting 10,000 applications for one spot. You know, you're not getting that kind of competitiveness um, because some pediatric subspecialties, they, their pay is actually less than general pediatrics. That's a disincentive. So I guess, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to ask you how you think about all these interlocking parts, but I mean, the interlocking parts are, how do you decide who's better than another person? They're saying that the test helps us decide that, but I don't know if that's true. The next question is, why do they need to decide that so urgently? And the answer is, I think they're getting paid too much. How do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, there's there's a wide difference in salary. And I mean, um, <laughs> you're right, compared to many physicians, I, uh, I'm i not a, a high earner, but um, but uh, honest to God, I mean, I feel overpaid most most days. I mean, I, I you know, I, I have a very good life and I can't, um, I can't complain about any of that, but, um, but you're right. The, the realities of the landscape are just what you mentioned. And I mean, there's, there's literature on the fact that, um, I think you and I have talked on Twitter before there's a paper. Oh, a couple of years ago that showed the correlation between mm -hmm. step one scores and specialty and what was choice like and, um, seven or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, the effect size was such that, um, Oh, I want to say it was like, a a seven point increase on your step one score conferred a million dollars more net worth at retirement or something wow, like that. You know? yeah. So, yeah. So, so you're right. It, it's, it's, but, but the fundamental mm. problem, as you mentioned, is that, you know, we, we also have a problem with over application or in my opinion, we have a problem. Yes, with no, I agree. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. I mean, like I, um, uh, how many, how many residency programs did you apply to? Do you recall? Yeah, I recall. I think I applied to like 22 and I think I, um, was advised to go on eight interviews and I think I went on 11, but like I'm in Chicago. So like five are in this or like, you know, a bunch were in the city, you know, it was easy, but, 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 um, and then I think yeah. I went on a couple because I wanted to meet somebody. Um, but, 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 but I think, um, people I know <laughs> in some competitive specialties, they went on like, um, you know, like Durham 70, uh, that was back when I yeah. trained and, uh, they went on like 25, 30 interviews. Um, you know, I just make one joke. I mean, when, if, if somebody asks you, what do you want to do in life? 11 goddamn times by the end of it you don't believe you're you believe you're full of shit too. I mean, you don't even believe yourself i'm like oh i yeah. want to do this and then i'm like look i'm like listen to this son of a bitch talk. i'm like listen to this guy he doesn't believe that you know because you you can't tell your you can't tell your story that much all right go on sorry yeah right so yeah we had this problem where uh you know i mean as a group students are applying to many more programs than they used to such mm -hmm. that last year mm -hmm. um, according to the AMC the mean number of, of programs to which a US fourth year student applied the mean for all all students all specialties was 70 70 I mean, the mean what the 70. hell oh yeah. my god can you believe that yeah what i think i applied to 10 or 12 and i and that was actually across medicine peds and med peds you know oh, so wow. i you know uh -huh. I, you know i um so this is in many ways when I when I hear these people say, oh, you know, well, we got to have something to screen. I can't read all these applications. I mean, I, that's a true statement if you choose to live in a world of limitless application. But my question back is, I mean, do we have to choose to live in such a world? I, I would argue that we don't. So what do you suggest? Capping the apps or how? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there's um, I think that there's the system will work better. If you want people, if you want program directors to be able to evaluate you as anything other than a readily screenable metric, um, you have to give them the time to be able to do that. I mean, even at our program, I'm an associate program director for our pediatric residency program. Even at our program, it's, a, it's an incredible burden. We don't use step one score filters and we get maybe 
you know, 1400 applications for 24 spots. I mean, that, that's, that's a fraction of what many programs that, um, you know, receive. I mean, we're not in a competitive, you know, field, but, but still that volume of applications, it presents a, a substantial evaluative burden. And this is among a group of people who, you know, reading applications is not our primary responsibility, right, right. you know? So, um, I, I have, you know, the, the trouble is that, um, you know, to get to get buy-in for this for to people for people to believe that um, that if we all limited our applications, we would be a little bit better off. It requires um, thinking broadly about the consequences to the system if everyone applied to fewer places, um, and that's that takes more thought than most people I think are willing to give it. In my experience, the knee-jerk response is to think of the current system, and you can only apply to fewer programs, so no, I don't want that. That would disadvantage me. Mm. But, you know, I've, I've written and made YouTube videos about how, you know, sort of it's like toilet paper in COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. Like, yes. It might even have enough you. toilet paper. Yes, because everyone has. Written <laughs> that, yeah. Yes. Right. But let me, let me, I mean, I guess I, 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 your point is wise. I mean, I see, I see the wisdom in it, but let me ask you sort of, I mean, a philosophical question. I mean, philosophically, I think here are the challenges. We, there are all these students who come into the MD program. There's so many of them, so many students, so many students. And maybe 3% of them, honestly, just between you and me, and no one's listening. No, no one's listening. No one's listening. But 3% of them probably, they need to be booted out. They got to go. I mean, maybe not. I don't know if 3% is the number, but there's some fraction of these students, very low fraction, 1%, half a percent, 3%, 2%, something like that. I don't know the number, but they got to go. But our system will never boot them out. That's one of the problems that, like, you just can never boot out somebody like this. And, like, I'm talking about people who have problems with, like, honesty problems, problems with confabulation, problems with um, uh, temper issues, uh, ability to stay calm under pressure. Um, right. You know, we, we all, and, and then some other like fr- overt, um, um, uh, overt medical problems that are put, uh, uh, that impair their ability to perform the task. Um, and, and I say that like not with any malice or spite, like just, just, just a fact of any system that like there's going to be a few bad apples. And the problem is you don't weed them out. And that's why you read, I don't know, there's some uh, some podcast, 10 part series on how neurosurgeon paralyzes people for six right. decades. Right. right. Yeah. And no one ever said a word. Why didn't they say it? Because the system right. doesn't have. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, we, we actually provide a counter incentive. We we provide an incentive for students to uh, or for schools to pass along those students. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're. There's there's little harm to the school in um, in in dismissing those students or in, in in passing those students on, you know. But if they if they have people that leave the school, that hurts their LCME survey. You know, it exposes uh. them to the potential of a lawsuit. And and you know, there's not a compassionate way of off off ramping people yes. from medical school either. There once you've taken be, on yes. you know six mm-hmm. figures of debt, that, and that's well put. There needs to be a compassionate way that recognizes that that debt, yeah. I don't, I don't know the answer, but I, but I think the, the philosophical point is true. We need a way to kind of take a few people out of the system. Doesn't mean, you know, tar and feather them. It just means kind of pull them out of the, the patient care system. Okay, the next principle I want to come to you is um, there are like, there is a range of how people do in this job. They're really good. They're really good doctors. And then they're really doctors who need some help. Um, and, but I, but I want to say that these are really blurry categories. They're really, really blurry. Um, and you, you really don't know, like there's nothing on a CV that tells you who are the good doctors. And, and some people may start with a little bit of stuttering, but they become great. And some people may be come out of the gates really good, but they become mediocre. And some people become less than mediocre. 
And I think the whole system's goal has to be that all the people who are like less than less than average or media or average, there's something in the system that keeps them trying to get a little bit better each year. So some, I don't know what the process is. I don't want to spec like I don't know if using these stupid standardized tests every 10 years is the right idea. I mean, I have my doubts that the things we're doing are those things. Um, but there's something that's yeah. got to keep them up to date. I don't know what the answer is. And there's some people who are stars and they need to be allowed to flourish and do really great things. I think one of the challenges that all these training programs face is like, like to me, it doesn't make sense a lot. Like why university, U Washington, UCLA, OHSU, US, UCSF, UCSD, we're all interviewing the same people. And one of us says like, this person is the best, this person's second best, this person's third best. The next school says, well, actually it's number four is the first best and this is the second best. But you know, there's some probably, con I don't know, I don't know if anyone's actually done that. There's some, I'm sure there's some concordance that Dr. So-and-so who was Harvard, Harvard, Harvard and has 270 board score and really good, you know, that's the person that tends to score high and doctor, you know, from other tier schools, you know, they tend to score middle. But to me, like, one of the things people say as to, like, why you need to interview the applicant is to, quote, unquote, look for red flags. And by that, they mean, you know, was the applicant, I don't know, disinterested in the program or chatting on their phone or like, blah, blah, blah. And I always wonder, like, I'm like, you know, it's easy to say that that like you, you shouldn't you shouldn't be chatting on your phone when you're in an interview. Of course, that's a bad sign. But like the truth is like I like I don't know. Is that really like maybe their their mom is in, you know sick or in the hospital or maybe something happened to their uh, their dog or so. I, you know I don't know what their life is. It's not my. I don't want to go and up you know and judge people for what they have to do in their lives. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. I, I don't know. Um, but I guess my point is that I have never seen empirical data that although people act as if it's true, that if you identify out of 50 interviews, five people who do one thing that somebody really doesn't like, that those five people are somehow worse people than the 45 people who don't do that red flag thing. And that the fact that you'd have to replicate this experiment at all these different sites to find these five red flag people, I find is preposterous. Um, okay, so I, I wonder if some of this kind of interviewing could be centralized, like a single, uh, and the, the next point is actually, why do we even interview people? We interview people to get a sense of like how well they do jobs and things like that. But here we already have something that's like much better, which is these students work with some of our colleagues. Like they work with you for a month. When a student works with you for a month, that's like a much better assessment of their like abilities than if they meet me for 15 minutes and, you know, we talk about baseball. I mean, I don't know. I'd actually never, I don't know anything about baseball, but you know what I mean? Like sometimes it's not even, it's tangential to the thing. Okay. I'm, I'm doing a lot of rambling, but I'm going to come to the point. The point is this. The point is this. Um, as you talked about, like if an alien species looked at what we're doing with this interview process, they'd say, okay, you're making all these students pay all this money to apply to all these programs. You're making them pay all this money to go all these places and, and pour cash. A lot of these programs are honestly, they're, they're the same. Like if you did internal medicine at UCLA or UCSD or OHSU or Chicago or UCSF or Brigham or this, everyone can talk about how one is the best program or not, but they are, it's the same. COPD, heart failure, you have good doctors, they're really great clinicians at every yeah. place. Um, so like, why are we going, why are we doing this? This huge energy, we go having these meetings where somebody's like, oh, this person published a second author paper in blood advances and, and this person, oh, we, the research is my next topic. We're going to talk about this research, but <laughs> we're going through this huge theater about like, 
you know, how to pick these people. And the truth is, like, we're not even doing what we're supposed to do. We want, need to weed out this 3%. We need to just roughly sort people into just, like, where they're going to thrive categories. Um, and then we need to just, like, let people go to, like, what's close to them, close to their families, make sense for their lives. And then maybe a little bit of randomness can be scattered into the system. That's all we're trying to do. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you're. I think much of that's very true. I think that... Um, you know, interviews, the way that they're conducted in in residency selection are, are, are very low value. I think that they mainly serve to um, to give you confidence in the decision that they're making or, uh, you know, a less charitable way of saying that would be to reaffirm your own biases. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that if you if I just randomly assigned you a group of residents, even if I could show that they were the same ones that you would have gotten anyhow, if you don't have a say in who they are, you, you'll probably be less satisfied with the lot that you get, you know, people like to feel like they have a choice and that they have some input and that their uh, perception is good. But, you know, there are programs that use um, structured interviews. I think that those have more potential for um, yielding useful information. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about how other industries interview people, which isn't to, you know, uh, shake your hand and say, oh, you're from so such and such. Do you know this person? And, you know, the low value stuff that we do. And, you know, I mean, somebody that's interviewing in your part of the world for, you know, Google or some firm, I mean, they're, they're actually having, um, you know, cognitive tasks presented at their interviews and things that, um, that might yield information that, that you couldn't get otherwhere elsewhere. We don't, you know, obviously we don't pursue that in our interviews in medicine. That's well put. Yeah. I mean, I'm still in the contemplative phase of this. But I think, um, I think like we are forgetting we're, 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 we, we, we've all become so narcissistic in this process. Like we all think we're running the best program. We all think we're picking the best trainees. We all think we are the ones who are choosing and doing the choosing. But the reality is there are lots of good trainees. They're going to be good. There are few people who are destined to be in academics. They, the rest of them are not destined not to be in academics because they're any, any less capable of it. But maybe in many cases because they're wiser and they realize the futility of it. No, but, you know, they have different goals in life and there's nothing wrong with going into private practice. In fact, that's a majority field. Um, and yet somehow we're like have this huge bias that we think we're going to. And that, that leads me to my next thing. Um, the research. Yeah, you're, I mean, I think that's exactly right. It's driven. It's driven by vanity. I mean, I think that, um, you know. It is driven by vanity. The vanity is in many folds. One, I a hemonk doctor who knows jack shit about interviewing somebody and able to give them a, a four or a five or a three. I, kn- I know in 20 minutes that this person is a three. I don't know that. What the hell do I know about right. that? I know nothing right. about that. And then the next vanity is that like, that this person would do really well at UCLA, but they wouldn't do so well at Beth Israel Deaconess. I'm like, they do, they do well either place. Who, you know, what is it? It's the same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, what I what I was wanted to say is that uh, you know the, this pursuit of vanity would be fine if it didn't impose all these externalities. I mean, we could we could expend untold efforts to get the best residents if it didn't cost us. But but in reality, I mean, the product of of residency education is is a social good. I mean, we're producing doctors to take care of patients, and to the extent that all this chasing vanity to get residents that are the best residents, because we only want the best residents, to the extent that that impairs your focus on educating the residents that you have, yes. or compromises their training in school, you're, you're doing a disservice to to everyone. That's that you, you're putting it nicer than I. Um, okay, the next topic I want to talk about is the research. But first, let's, let's, well, let's first let's talk about the research, then we'll talk about MSTP to conclude the research. Um, 
Something is wrong in this system, my friend. Something is wrong. I mean, every I I went to medical school at the University of Chicago. I graduated in 2009. And, you know, there are so many people I went to school with who are awesome people, like super smart, witty, funny. You'll love to have a drink with them. Um, The vast majority of them are in private practice. Uh, It's not because they are... um, they they can't do research. It's because it's not their interest and it's not what set them the spark in them. At the same time, I suspect every one of these people has lied at some point. We make we make we make them lie. We make them lie. Oh, yeah. We make them lie their whole lives. We make them from the age of eighteen. Oh, you want to work in my molecular biology lab? Why is that? Well, I'm interested in going into medical school, but I also want to see if I want to do research and be a translational scientist. Oh, okay, okay, we'll come. No, that's not the reason. The reason is you are interested in going to medical school, and that is a prerequisite, so that you're going to go and get that right. prerequisite, and you're going to tell yourself whatever you need to tell yourself to do it. So you lie. And then you go to medical school. And then you say, oh, I want to go into ortho, but um, I need to do research in the lab on bone, bone morphogenic protein. Why the hell do you need to do research on bone morphogenic protein <laughs> to go and take, a, and take a Black & Decker saw to somebody's knee? I mean, I don't know. That makes no sense to me. And then for what? So that 20 years from now, when you're in, um, I don't know, Skokie, Illinois, in a, in, a, in, a, in a private practice that's, you know, doing a lot of knees in a high volume center and doing a good job, that you can say, well, once upon a time, I pipetted bone morphogenic protein and let me tell you what i learned in that experience no it's ridiculous this is so ridiculous and 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 i guess it just leads to i mean why does this really trouble me like when you read the literature and it's just garbage after garbage study and 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 it's like the and the and then the author is um um you know a trainee it's not the trainee's fault i mean it's not that their fault i mean and it's to be honest i don't even know if it's anybody's fault like We've, uh, it's no individual fault. It's a systemic fault. You have incentivized this trainee to produce some manuscript that is irrelevant to the job so that this trainee has a spot and has an, can be competitive for the job. And then you are surprised that the quality of the science is really poor. Um, and the trainees are very dissatisfied. And if anything, they, they're repelled from research because you made them do a very trivial task. You take somebody who has no content knowledge of the field and you ask him to do research in it. It would be like, it's painful really without understanding why or what, what that research means and how it connects. Um, and, and I say this as somebody who had the reverse, um, I don't want to say, I would say I am guilty of fooling myself, of, of, of fooling myself into thinking that I might be interested in the laboratory. I realized at some point in my career that that was not the case. And, and I think that was when I was like a yeah. medical student and I stopped saying that. I said, I'll never say that again. And I don't care what anyone says. In the beginning, maybe I fooled myself into thinking I might. But now I know by the time I'm a second year medical student, it's never going to happen for me. And then I was like, well, I'm going to be a private practice doctor. And that was really how I, I carried myself through, I think, with that thought, but also maybe I'd be a medical educator and work at university, be a clinician, educator kind of type. Um, but then when I was a resident, by working with Adam Sifu, who was kind of my friend and mentor and not really, um, this wasn't really his day job, but we kind of did some papers on reversal. I kind of backdoored into policy research, not because I ever wanted to be a policy researcher, but because that was kind of what I was curious about. And I, I got a little curious and piqued my interest. And after a while, it kind of snowballs. So, I guess I want to say I know so many people who have genuinely come to like research, but I know most people who genuinely don't like it, and I don't like this system where we make them pretend that they like it. 
Okay. I'll now I'll let you say what are your thoughts on this topic? Research how we choose. Oh, I I very much yeah, I very much dislike that system. I mean, as a as a matter of personal principle, I've sort of um, conducted my career at different stages by being very frank about how I had no interest in doing <laughs> scientific research. And 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 I'll be honest, yeah, it's uh it it obviously is off-putting to certain people and programs to say that, but as a matter of principle, I you know, I wanted to, I got into this because I wanted to take care of the kids and I, I like teaching and I feel like I have some value to add some other things. But I'll tell you, in matter of fact, there is a document with my name on it of explicit advice for your interviews. And, and this document says something to the effect of whether you think that research is going to be a big, minor or non-existent part of your career. The correct answer to any question about research is that you are very very interested in it. Yeah. You know, because that's the, that's the game that we have to play and yeah. I want my mentees to succeed. Um, and, and unfortunately, it's, it has become just another piece of this residency selection and academic medicine arms race where, you know, now and we were talking about dermatology before a number of dermatology um, applicants are encouraged to take a, you know, a gap year within their medical school education to do research to make themselves more competitive. And, um, and I think that's a trend that unfortunately we're going to see continue because, um, you know, that's that's the incentive system that we put in place. And so, you know, it's a perfect example of um like many other things in this, in this space of, of Campbell's law, you know, that once you start to make a, you know, make a measure, a target, it ceases to be a useful measure of ah, anything. Ah, well put, well put. Ah, it's a good one. Yeah. Well put. Um, okay. Last topic. And I'm bar- I'm burying this at, at past the one hour mark. Cause I hope no one listens to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually the last topic, maybe I'll talk to you about Twitter for a minute because we'll come to that. Um, because you're on Twitter. Um, the, the second, the penultimate topic, the MSTP program. Now, um, I, I want to say for the record, like, um, I really believe it is important that there are some doctors in the ecosystem of doctors who understand what it's like to see patients and also what it's like to whatever they do in the laboratory. I have no clue, pipette or whatever, mass spec or whatever you do in there. And I think it's important because, one, throughout the history of medicine, there have been some um, people who've had that range of experience who have made profound contributions. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing Harold Varmus in my mind, but he was one. He's an MD who, who developed oncogenes or discovered oncogenes. Um, but there are many others, many others. Um, there are also many people who just had the PhD background who made great discoveries. And there's some people who did like an MD only and then they kind of fell into it and they made a few discoveries, but they're fewer. Um, okay, so I mean, I, I believe there is a value for having somebody who knows to patients and, and doing laboratory work. Um, once you decide that that's a valuable thing to have in society, I think the question is, where do you put the money to get that to happen? And you could basically put money in all, so many different places in this pipeline. You could put money and say, we're going to have more grants so that junior faculty who want to start and try their hand at a lab can have a lab. So when you're an assistant professor, you know, 30-something assistant professor, you're going to have some startup money, um, $600,000 so that you can try your hand at doing some lab work and maybe do some correlates and stuff like that. Maybe you can have, maybe you can have a crack. Okay. You can also put money and say, we're going to put money in the fellowship programs and say, you know, there's some fellows every year. They come here. They do fellowship. Halfway through the fellowship, they say, I love, I, I really want to try my try my hand at lab work. I want to be a f- translational scientist. Um, maybe there's a program where they can apply to do a PhD or a master's and get a little extra funding and stay an extra year or two, build up their skills to be competitive for this, this kind of physician scientist job. The other thing you can do is you can take that money and you can put it in to the MSTP program. 
uh, it's very costly. My understanding is like half a million dollars per person because they pay for their medical school and they pay for the PhD and they have stipends and they pay for all the staff. And, you know, it's a nice grant to get if you're at the university. Yeah. And those indirects, baby, those indirects. Yeah, those indirects are good, um, which is what we like. We like indirects. Um, um, okay. Um, one of my criticisms of the MSTP program is they put all, all these shiny brochures and they're like, I don't know, whatever percent of their, I forget the numbers. Like so, X percentage of our MSTP graduates are in working at academic medical centers, and I'm always like, I'm sorry, that's not the outcome that we paid you all those big bucks for. I, I know some MD PhDs who work in academic centers, and they are clinician educators, which is great. I love clinician educators. In fact, I'm probably close close to one actually myself. Um, I love them. They're my best my besties. My best friends are clinician educators. However. That's not why we gave you half a million dollars. It wasn't to make a clinician educator. It was to make a physician scientist. So the end point of working at an AMC is not the end point. The end point has to be you work at an AMC and you run a translational lab. Now, then they say things like, well, you know, even though I don't run a translational lab, I learned things in my PhD that forever influenced me in life. And I say, that's terrific. I spent a, a summer in Costa Rica where I studied the healthcare system there. I learned things that have forever changed who I am. But nobody paid half a million dollars to create a program that they would train people to go to Costa Rica. For. So, okay, that right. doesn't exist, right? We're not, we're not giving that half a million so that you can feel like you understand rigorous thinking a little bit better. Um, you know, we could have Frank Harrell give everyone a Bayesian stats course for, for you know, 20 grand a person, right? Not, maybe not half a million, right? We could, there are other ways we can get at that. Okay. Um, my point is, and then they say something like, well, the percent of people who do run labs is actually much higher with the MSTP than MDs in general. And I say, well, of course it is. You've self-selected the people who said they wanted to do that. If you can't beat, right. out, beat MDs in general, then you're running the, a delinquent program that actually uh, is doing it. It's right. going against the curve, right? It's actually harming them for being a citizen. Okay. Anyway, so the crux of my argument is actually not that we oughtn't fund this, but that we ought to think about as a scientist would, if I have a fixed budget, where should I put that money? And my gut feeling and from looking at the descriptive data, my gut feeling is that putting it in the beginning is not the place to put it. You're, you're incentivizing a lot of people to chase, the, chase this, um, to do this, who still are too young to know they want to do this. Putting the money at the end, fellowship, junior faculty, retention, um, helping la that stage, that's, I think, when you want to do it. Now, of course, this is a, uh, whenever I say this on Twitter, you know they come for me. And that's the last topic. They come for me when I say this on Twitter. Um, they're not happy with me because I think it's natural that if you did it, you feel like that was important in your life to do. And anyone who says you oughtn't do that is, you know, is threatening your identity. I get that. Um, but I'm just really asking these questions because I think they're worth asking when you're spending so much money. Um, and then I think the other, um, well, anyway, those, those are just my thoughts. What are your thoughts on MSTP? Yeah, I, I, I think everything that you said is pretty much right on. I think that, um, you know, um, kind of like we were talking about with medical schools and how some students are are probably not best served by staying there, you know, or society's not best served. I mean, admissions offices are not infallible. And similarly, people who select people for MSTP, they're not infallible. They may do their God's honest job the best they can, but, um, you know, they're, they're going to have some hits and some misses. And I don't think that it's wrong to say that, um, as, as you said, there's multiple ways in which we could support research. I mean, I think, um, I think the MSTP programs do um, a very good job for a certain number of people, whether those people would have been better, better served by, um, um, I mean, as you said, maybe, maybe you give that money on the back end 
and say, you know, we're going to pay back a bigger portion of your medical school loans or something if you're interested, or or even give you a chance to, you know, to jump into research training, you know, after your first two two years. I think that it's intentionally obtuse to say that if you're opposed to MSTP, you're um, opposed to research. Yeah, I think that there's other ways you could yes. fund it. And I think that that deliberately ignores the argument that, um, or it deliberately ignores the reality that these grants, um, in, you know, they, the mentors and the institutions gain from them also. And I think it's, it's fair to acknowledge that and say that that's one thing that perpetuates, um, you know, belief in this program. No, I mean, I, I, it's not something that's uh, one of my personal soapboxes, but I think that it's a fair question to ask, um, you know, for the reasons that you mentioned. You you you're, you're, you put a lot of things nicer than I say it. Um, okay, last thing, and then I'll, I'll let you go. I'm sorry I'm keeping you so long, but I really enjoy talking with you. I I've, I have to admit, I mean, I really like your posts all these years. I find I think you're a really thoughtful person in this space. I think uh, it's not just me. Obviously, you know, you have a huge following of people who recognize that you're thinking about these things in a I think, I mean, I would describe it as sort of just a, 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 a common sense, non-biased, thoughtful, first principles kind of way. Um, you, you, you don't really have a, a, a big agenda other than you, you kind of want us to remove inefficiencies. Um, okay, here's the last thing I want to talk to you about. Um, Twitter. Um, I, you've been on it for a while. And you talk about these things. And I've been on it for a while. Um, I think I really got into it when my first year of faculty, 2015. And now it's my sixth year, I guess, on faculty. It's twenty. It's 2021, isn't it? Yeah, okay, 2021, okay. Um, I, 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 I've got some concerns about it as a medium to discuss ideas. I think like 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, we could discuss ideas. Like we could talk about MSTPs. I had many discussions about it. Um, we could talk about step one. I mean, you and I, you know, I think you talked about it a lot. I, I jumped in on some of these. We could talk about the MCAT. We could talk about these things. People wouldn't always agree, but there was some ability to have a dialogue. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm a little concerned that that is, has, that era has ended, um, in part because the volume of participants is so great in part because, I mean, anonymous participants has reached new highs. And I know many people say that, like, there are reasons why some people choose to be anonymous. I get that. But there are also reasons why some people are anonymous that are not good. Like, for instance, they are not even yeah. in, this, in this country, and they are foreign adversaries trying to get us to tear each other apart. Um, the reason that this all kind of – so I guess I'm, I'm going to kind of pick your brains on – you're somebody who – you're disciplined in the sense that you keep your content focused on these issues you care about, and that may, to some degree, spare you. Um, on the other hand, these issues about who we select I and how— I think it does. It spares Okay. These issues about who we select yeah. and how we select them, though, they increasingly have broader relevance, and so someday you may no longer be spared. Um, but I cannot help myself— um, I'm drawn to, I think, <laughs> certain types of discussions where I view rational people saying things that strike me as irrational. I'm drawn to it like a moth to the flame. And my wing is on fire, my friend, uh, because one of the things I was drawn to was, um, you know, like once you're vaccinated with a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, and I looked at that efficacy data. And oh, more, yeah. Yeah, right. I look, and more importantly, I looked, I looked at the data that like um, – you know, if you get two doses and you're asymptomatic for a period of time, what's the subsequent probability you were to develop the virus? Uh, you know, which is a very different probabilistic question than what's the probability you developed the virus from time zero. 
This is time like day, I don't know, 38 or something. Day 38 to day to end of study is different than day zero to day 38. And people don't appreciate that. Anyway, I got drawn to it. I wrote an article about it. Um, and, and then I tweeted about it. And like any tweet, you know, sometimes you spin it in a flat way, but sometimes you put a little spin on it to, to kind of see who, who's interested. And I think a tweet that did me in was some tweet about <laughs> of some bear. <laughs> I wanted to write a children's story about a bear who wanted it to be perfectly safe and they never went outside and life passed them by. Um, which I thought was a, a parable for how there's no such thing as zero risk and we all take risk every time we go out of our house and that these risks are on par with those risks. But that really pissed them off. And, and, and of course, you know, I guess in, in retrospect, uh, actually, you know, it's funny. I had a couple people call me, including some people who are very, um, Twitter discipline. They don't say much on Twitter. And one of them who called me, he said, you know, I thought your bear story was funny. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't have seen it. I wouldn't have guessed that this was the one that would have lit the fuse on these people. Um, okay. So I want to say, I think what's going on here is in part, um, they were annoyed by my bear, my 180 character parable of a bear. In part, they were annoyed by the content of my argument. I think they don't like that content. I mean, I think they think there are a lot of people who think that we ought to have the same precautions before or after vaccine. I think in part, it's not a good time for people. People are, you know, we're all cooped up, haven't gone to a jazz club in a couple months. You know, people are stressed. Um, in part, Twitter is a place where instead of dialoguing with somebody, you want to find the person to say, this is the bad person of the day. This is the bad, this is the evil person. Okay, so my question to you is, put it all together, what, is, what are your thoughts on this medium as a place to, you're somebody who has, I feel like, you know, there's some similarities between us. I mean, it's, it's allowed us to get our message, which is a anti-establishment message, out to a huge audience that we never would have gotten otherwise. At the same yeah. time, I now feel the other side of the sword in my neck. Um, um, I, I would humbly offer that I'm not, as some of my critics say, pro-death. I would humbly offer that I'm not actually have a goal of merely angering them to anger them. I actually do believe that my view on this vaccine is, in fact, whether or not you think I'm right or wrong, uh, <laughs> since doubting the sincerity of my belief, I think, is not the right answer. Okay. Um, so how do you think about this? Um, and uh, I, I'll tell you, I mean, the long story short is I'm, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm not going to use it the same way anymore. I'm going to really pull back. But how do you think about this place? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit on several things that I was going to say. I mean, I I can't say too much bad about it because mm -hmm. if if it weren't for Twitter, I mean, I don't think I would um, I would be able to put my words in some of the people's ears that I'm trying to put my words yeah. in their ears. You know, I mean, um, you know, before this kind of era, when I mean, the the stuff that I put out that I care most about, I mean, is on Twitter or on my site. You know, I didn't. Um, I didn't earn my way up the ladder by going to meetings and hobnobbing with, you know, the, the people at the AMC or the NBME until they finally would listen to what I cared to say. I just said what I, what I said. And I, um, and I said it loud enough and emphatically enough and in enough different ways that, you know, my words sort of found their ears. And, um, so from that standpoint, I mean, I've got to acknowledge, I think that, um, um, you know, on issues that I really care about, it's been a, a very effective, a very effective thing. I think that I have steered clear of a lot of Twitter's ire. I mean, I'm sure I'll get some of it. I mean, I get some from time to time, yeah. but um, it doesn't hurt my feelings much. I mean, I try, as you said, I, I do have a narrower brand. I've, I've sort of decided that, I mean, um, the thing, there's, there's many things. The reason I'm in this space, the reason I talk about this stuff is honestly because I care about it. It's honestly because I think that we can make a better system. And um, so I'm a little bit reluctant to, um, 
turn people off from me over issues that I really don't care about, Ah, you know, where I just think something, I mean, I, I, I sort of feel like, um, you know, it's not necessarily, I mean, I think that I have insights on certain things that at least I've never heard other people say or think about the way that I have, but, um, most of the stuff that goes through my head is stuff that other people have said better. And I, and, you know, every discussion is not made better by me (laughs) popping off about it. Um, I try also to, um, I mean, I, I am pretty, at times I'm pretty pr- provocative and persistent, but, um, I try as, as you've talked about before, I try to punch up, you know, I mean, if somebody's debating with me and they're a, a student or somebody, I, 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 and I think if you go through my tweets, you'll see that yes. I, I mean, I, I try as good as I can to stick to that principle. Um, but I think you're right. The, the, the Twitter algorithm and the, the nature of the way that we engage with it, 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 it stimulates a part of human nature that I mean, lots of people talked about cancel culture and, and so on. I mean, it's, um, you know, that, that outrage sensor of your brain is, um, uh, you know, it's easily triggered and, and it serves a good role in society in many ways. I mean, shunning someone from the group is, is an ancient way of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of elevating the human species to what we are now. But I think it certainly is, um, you know, that from the extreme situations in which that sort of stuff should be applied, it's applied to all manner of things in which it shouldn't these days. That's well said. I'll leave it with that. Brian Carmody, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I uh, really appreciate this discussion. No, I'm glad to be on. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.